This week on Writers Inc. That that was such a cool project, and it came about after years of working with Blake Snyder Enterprises. So Blake Snyder passed away in 2009, um, sadly, but he has this really great team of people who keep his name, his legacy, and the brand alive. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's In. What's up, man? Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing good. So I, I'm. You run Facebook ads, right? I, I on and off, yeah. Have you been noticing them getting shut down in the last week or two? No, I, I don't. I don't have any. I don't think I have any running right now. So oh, I okay. haven't noticed that. Yeah. So I started noticing. Um, I, I I've got ads that I've been running forever. You know, some of them have been you know two three years, and I just wow. kind of change the the target. You know, I, I I tweak the words every now and then, but like once I stumble into something that works, I just kind of keep you know keep running it. Um, but I've I've had like in the last two weeks, every one of my Facebook ads has gotten rejected, and and these are ads that have you know. That, like I said, I've been running for, for years and I couldn't figure out why. So I started Googling it and I'm finding other authors having the same problem. And it seems to be related to Amazon links. Like Facebook all of a sudden has decided they don't want to allow Amazon links in, in their ads. Like straight links? Straight, straight links. Like wow. according, according to the information that I'm reading, and, and I don't know how much of this is real and how much of it is speculation, but we have to get permission from Amazon in order to put their link on a Facebook ad, or at least that's the direction it seems to be going in. Um, and if that's the case, like, I don't know how that's going to pan out um, because I kept, you know, again, ads that have been running forever, they just kept getting rejected. And a lot of times, you know, that's happened in the past and I would just kind of turn them back on again and or send for a, a manual review and then it would get, you know, it would go right through the system and it would be okay. But they, the same ads kept getting rejected, you know, like two, three times in a day. Um, and even after the manual review, and then when I went through the notes, you know, they're sometimes difficult to decipher because I, I don't know who's writing them, whether it's a, a bot somewhere in Antarctica and, you know, in on a supercomputer, or if it's some guy in India or whatever, but like, it's hard to figure out exactly what they're saying. But, you know, I, I realized it was all pointed to the links and then I started researching it. Um, so I went over to self-publishing formula because that's kind of my go-to for this kind of information. And I found a, a number of threads where people were talking about it. Uh, and it looks like they're having the same problem in the UK. So in, any Facebook ad that had an Amazon link seem to be getting rejected. And if you replace the face, the, the Amazon link with, um, you know, like a universal link, it, it seems to take. And, and I've noticed that too. I, I went through all of mine and did that. Uh, the problem is that creates additional clicks, you know, which is kind of a no, no in, in any kind of advertising, you know, the least number of clicks to that buy button is, is what you're shooting for. Um, so when you put a universal link in there, you're all of a sudden taking them to a landing page and then they have to go 
from the landing page to the landing page for the vendor, and then they have to actually buy. So you're giving them one more step to, to say no along the way. But from what I could tell, that's the only way to make it work. And, and I honestly thought at the beginning of this, it was just related to all the political ads that are, are flowing. Um, I figured Facebook was just cracking down on advertising in general. And, you know, some book ads were just getting caught in the mix of things that were getting denied. Um, but there's definitely something going on there. Um, and I, I, I'm hoping that they're not going to like outright ban Amazon links because I don't know what that's going to mean to the booksellers. Um, wow. Yeah, I was just curious if, if you've run into it. Um, no, but no. I mean, that's problematic from the other side too, because I know from Amazon's side, they prohibit uh, referral links in ads. Oh, okay. So like you, technically, I think what you would have to do is you would have to create a landing page for your ad, like on your own website. And then right. on the landing page, you could link directly to the Amazon page. Um, that's permissible from both sides. But th this, could, yeah, that, that could be a real problem because uh, that's going to leave us right in the middle yeah, between a rock and a hard place. Yeah, and it's just one more place for, for things to go wrong. Yeah. Um, so, so we'll see what happens. And I'm hoping that they, they iron out whatever the, the headache there is. So um, strange how that stuff just pops up out of the blue and just, you know, yeah, well, no you know, that's. No, they, they don't talk about it. I mean, same thing like the Amazon book clubs. I, I still haven't seen a press release on that, but it's, you know, it's all over their website now. So it's obviously been rolled out. Yeah. Um, they, they just kind of, everybody just sort of does their own thing and you, you, you stumble into it. I uh, spent a, an hour on the phone with my mom today trying to convince her that her iPad is not a Kindle. <laughs> um, she she kept she kept telling me that she can't facetime on her kindle and i'm like yeah well yeah you can't because it's not an apple device and then my sister told me no she doesn't have a kindle she's got an ipad but the only thing she uses her ipad for is the kindle so oh. she thinks that's yeah so i had to explain that one to her um <laughs> other than that things have been pretty quiet over here i'm, I'm waiting that you know the, the patterson book comes out on um monday which i, I guess the day this this podcast airs um so like right now we're like four days away from from launch so i'm just i'm counting those those days and hours and minutes and, and seconds waiting to see what's going to happen there what's your calendar look like for, for launch day are you are you gonna work are you gonna like what are you going to do? I, I'm, I'm terrible. And I don't know if it's because of the Aspie thing or what, but like I, I, I work every day. Like I write on my birthday, I write on Christmas. Um, it, it doesn't matter. Like it helps keep my head clear. So I'll, I'll be writing for sure. Um, from a marketing standpoint, they don't have me doing a whole lot. Uh, you know, it's not like a traditional release where I'm talking to, you know, doing interviews and doing blog posts and, you know, all these different things. Um, for the most part, his machine is pretty self-reliant. Um, so I've got a couple different talks that I've got to do, but um, it's you know not, nothing like if I'm putting out a book on my own, which honestly is a little bit refreshing because I'm just kind of sitting back waiting to to see what happens. Yeah, I mean you could you could kind of pull up the Amazon page and just keep hitting refresh to check the rank. <laughs> I, I'm doing that far too often as it is right now. <laughs> just yeah, because it, it's it's addictive, and then I, you know I'm trying to do the mental math there. Well, if it's ranked at 500 right now on a pre-order in the Amazon store, what does that mean for actual bookstores? And, you know, trying to, you know, cause I, I've got, I've got my eye on that New York times list and, you know, Amazon sales alone aren't enough to get you there. Right. You can sell like a madman on Amazon, but if you're not at, you know, in multiple venues, they, they don't count you. Yeah. Um, but Patterson obviously is. Um, I mean, I know for my local bookstore, I, I think, I think he said I've got like 1200 books that I, I have to go down there and sign uh, oh, next wow. week. Um, you know, so that's, 
you know, and obviously that that's people that are looking for signed editions. So he's probably got, you know, a lot more than a typical bookstore would. Um, but, but who knows? Um, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for the phone to ring with, with Jim saying, Hey, we made the list and we're number what, <laughs> I, I, I don't know what it could be. Or, 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 or we might end up just missing the list by one. That that's my typical luck. Like if the list ends at 15, then I'll, I'll hit it like number 17. Um, we'll, we'll see by, yeah. by this time next week, we'll, we'll know where that all played out. And, and you don't have to divulge anything, but I'm assuming that, uh, you know, you have to, you have to wait for quarterly statements to get some idea of, of sales. Uh, well, I, I thought so. I mean, all, all the publishers are really different. Um, oh. you know, from my own standpoint, like random house has a really good system in place. They've got an author portal where you can log in and you can see data more or less like a couple days behind. Oh, okay. Um, so like pre-order information and everything would be there. Um, other publishers, it's exactly like you said for like HMH, um, Harper Collins, those guys, I've got to wait on quarterly statements. Um, and you know, those go to my agent. So by the time I get them, you know, it's, it's like six months in the rear. Um, but from what Jim told me, he, he said that, you know, I'll probably get a phone call from him you know two or three days before it actually appears in the paper because he gets notified in advance um that that it's going to rank um so yeah i'm just just watching that and speaking right. of him i got i gotta bug him about his flip property I, I, did you see the news on this no so he he's got yeah you know, he, he's got a house down in palm beach he's right on the water there and he, he had told me that he he had bought a house next door to to renovate and he was gonna gonna flip it and this was a couple of years ago so i just kind of put it out of my mind um turns out the house he bought was john lennon's old house <laughs> Um, and, and John Lennon bought it for, if I remember right, I think six or $700,000, like back, back in the day. Um, it just sold for 40, I think it's 47 million was what the, what it said in the news. Um, so I'm curious on a couple counts here. I I'm curious, you know, who bought it because it doesn't say in, in the press. And I want to ask him about that. Um, and I'm wondering if you found any lost, uh, you know, Beatles tapes, like hidden in the walls when they're <laughs> you know, knocking out the kitchen or something, because who knows what, what was inside that place. Wow. Um, yeah. So Anyway, <laughs> how are back things to, with you? Yeah, back to the real world. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, like my wife and I do flip properties. We don't do those kind of flip yeah. properties. <laughs> no forty-seven million dollar flips on our our balance sheet right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good stuff. Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah. my my kids are back in school. It's it's a weird. Uh, my daughter's a freshman and my son's a senior in high school, and it's just a weird. It's weird on both ends, but um, no. selfishly, it's kind of nice. Um, that, uh, you know, I, I kind of have the house to myself again because <laughs> everyone's been here since like March. So uh, did, did you did you get a choice in that? Like, could, did the school say you could send them back or they could stay home and learn if you wanted to keep them home or, or was yeah. it just one or the. Yeah, they they uh, they attend a private school and they had the option of uh, of going online or going to school. And, and I think at, at the high school level, anyways, the, the overwhelming majority of the kids decided to to go back in person and they've seemed to be doing OK, like they're you know, they're, they're holding up the protocols. They're, they're being really serious about it. And, uh, fingers crossed. I mean, it'll be a different school year for sure, but, uh, they, they seem to be doing okay. Yeah, that's good. Cause I, I, I'd hate to see, I mean, going to school is, is a huge part of the experience, right? Like right. actually, you know, hanging out with your friends and like that, that whole thing. And like to take that away, you know, you, you don't get your high school years back, you know? So like to lose a whole year of high school like that, you know, like my, my niece, um, you know, she graduated last year and, you know, it was more or less a virtual graduation, yeah. you know, like she's not going to get the chance to graduate high school ever, you know, like these things just kind of go away. So that, that makes me really sad, but it's, it's nice to see, you know, some, some normalcy happening out there. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. So that, it, it, things things are on the up, I hope. Cool. All right. So who do we have on today? Today, we have Jessica Brody on the show. Oh, save the cat. Okay. Yes. Yes. Uh, for, for people who don't know, uh, Jessica 
took Blake Snyder's uh, book on uh, screenwriting and adapted it to novel writing. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation and, and talking to her about the Save the Cat methodology and, and how that works for writers now and not just uh, screenwriters. Yeah, that, that's one of my go-tos when I'm talking to mentor uh, you know, students or, or just people at writer. You know, anybody that's struggling to put a book together, um, if, if they need a little bit of help, Save the Cat is just huge. You know, it's not necessarily an outline, but it gives you a, a roadmap and it's and it's the the right formula. Um, so I, yeah, I can't wait to hear what she's she's got to say on this. Yeah. All right. So should we uh, get to Jessica and then we'll come back on the flip side? Yes, sir. Here she is, Jessica Brody. Do you mind if I um, start with a bowl of guacamole? I, I don't understand. Is that a <laughs> is that a phrase, or are you really going to eat some guacamole? <laughs> I was going to see what your reaction was. Like, are you allergic through the internet, or is it just oh, uh, avocados in so person? You have actually been doing, doing some research. I, I was like. Okay, so it's really odd that he picked the one thing I'm allergic to to start <laughs> eating in front of me. Yes, so, uh, you have no, to tell me a little bit about that. I've never heard of that. I, my my mom has it too, so it's oh. obviously genetic. But um, it's actually just I, I'm told it's just an intolerance because I'm not like I wouldn't die <laughs> if I ate it, or it it doesn't. Yeah, it just makes me really sick. So. Um, and I can have like tiny bit, like, so my food can touch it. So you don't, you know, I tell them at restaurants, I'm like, you don't have to clean it the whole kitchen. It's, it's not like not a gonna... peanut allergy or anything, right? No. And yeah, it just, uh, if I, if I consume more than kind of like an ounce of it, then I'll just get sick and, and wow. my body just has to like work through it and then I'm fine the next day, but it's pretty much wipes me out for the whole day. That is crazy. Do you have any other allergies? Mm -mm. Just avocado. Mm -hmm. Wow. <laughs> I know. Well, okay. I mean, yeah. there's, there's worse things. I'm, I'm, if I'm going to be allergic to anything, I'm glad it's something I'm not like, I don't crave, you know, it's right. not, I'd rather not be allergic to like gluten or chocolate or, you know, something exactly. Yeah. Really dramatic. <laughs> yeah. I knew a woman once who was allergic to citrus and I thought, wow, that is the um, most unique allergy I've heard of, but avocado has got to be pretty close. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have a friend who's allergic to balsamic vinegar. Wow. Yeah, but All she right. can have grapes, which is what balsamic vinegar is made out of. Right. And she can have grape juice and she can have wine and all just not balsamic vinegar. All right. So if we take avocado off the table and <laughs> uh, and your friend's not coming over, so you're not serving yeah, grape fine. juice for breakfast. Um, do, you, do you have a daily routine? Like, do you, do you have a morning routine, a daily routine? And if so, what does that look like? Um, I do. I have a very strict daily routine. Um, so this is where the real questions start, right? Because, you know, the avocado question. <laughs> I'm going to keep sort of you a, on your toes, Jessica. I've got some other like ones. It's just like a softball, easy one. Okay. <laughs> i got more for um, you coming. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I'm, I'm actually really strict about my routine. It's taken me years to perfect it and get it regimented. Um, but my, my routine basically consists of, it's very easy. It's that I don't do anything except write in the morning. So when I wake up, I do, the only things I will do before I write are things that are sort of uh, designed to help me write better. So I will meditate. I will take a quick walk. Um, I will kind of create like a, a journal for the day. Like these are the things I want to get done today. I'll, oh, I write a gratitude journal too. Just like everything to kind of get me into the right headspace. I try to eat the same high protein meal every morning, um, high protein, low carb, low sugar meal, just to kind of get my brain primed. Um, and then and then I write for about two to four hours, depending on the project and my 
level of motivation on it. Um, and then not until that box is checked, like having written, do I actually open an email or look at anything else? So my rule is, I always tell people like prioritize what's most important to you. So if email is the most important thing in your day, then fine, do that first. But I'm guessing that most people are not going to say email is their most important thing. They're going to say like, it's my art or it's my you know business or it's my book that I'm working on. So do that first and make sure you're putting all of your effort and your freshest brain towards that. Oh, I love that. I've almost <laughs> the exact same morning ritual. Uh, what's, oh, yeah. What's your breakfast? I'm curious. Oh, it, well, it's changed, it's shifted a little over the years, but it's actually just a high protein smoothie. And I make it with, um, I make it with a full fat yogurt, uh, spinach, orange juice, blueberries, and bananas. That's it. Like just a little bit of orange juice just to cut the, nice. the, the spinach. And it's a, it's a protein powder that's mixed in there. Nope. Then. Oh no. I, no just, just... I actually, I did protein powder for years and I don't know why I just decided to switch it up. I use the yogurt for the protein. So oh, okay. I get... I get 20 to 25 grams of protein just from my yogurt. Excellent. I use Icelandic yogurt. This is my new secret. I used to use Greek and I found Icelandic has even more protein. That's not what the podcast is about. It's not about <laughs> avocados and Icelandic yogurt, but I'm just, but it is about expert. writing and it is about <laughs> getting your head in the right place. Right. <laughs> yes. I mean, and I, I know like the, the, the no sugar, low carb, almost it transformed my brain. Like I, I, I'm almost saddened to say that in my late forties, I discovered the effect that sugar had on me and my creativity. So it, it that yeah. kind of stuff does matter, don't you think? It, it absolutely does. I, I don't do any process, really very little processed sugar in my diet at all. Um, but I feel like a lot of people, they turn to pastries or muffins or cereal in the morning and it can give you like a nice quick boost, but it doesn't, sustain you for the whole writing time. So I find that something high fat and high protein is really the way to go. You like walnuts? I like nuts in general. Yeah. Yeah. yeah walnuts are good in the morning too. High fat and, uh, yeah. and protein. So excellent. I know um, too that you have uh, done extensive speaking in schools and I would love to know like where that started and how that happened and, and how that sort of become part of your, your brand or your identity. Um, yeah, I do. I do a lot of school visits, um, mostly middle schools and high schools. Um, you know, it started sort of by accident. My um, once I started writing because I actually wrote women's fiction to begin with. So adult fiction first, before I transitioned to teens writing for teens, I only had two, uh, a, like general fiction novels out. But my um, my high school that I went to, they were like, wow, you published a book. No one from our school's ever done that. Will you come talk to the kids? And I was like, oh God, what do I say to these kids? Like, you can do it. Um, so I sort of forced myself to sit down and create a presentation for them that I hoped would be inspiring and interesting. Um, and, it, and it went over really well. And I found that I really enjoyed talking to that age group. I wasn't even writing for that age group yet. And then when I, when I did transition into writing for teens, it was sort of a natural um, thing to start doing. Um, and I had connected with a bookstore in Arizona who said, hey, do you want to come out and do school visits for us? And again, I was like, oh, okay, this is a thing. People go into schools. And so I beefed up my presentation again and revamped it. And I started doing these school visits and they were getting really good feedback. And so I just kept doing them. And I was actually, I found that I sold a lot of books at the school visits too, which was also, you know, inspiring for me to go in because I was like, well, here I have this captive audience of my readers 
And if I can get them to pick up one of my books, then, you know, I'm one creating a reader who might not over already have been a reader. And, um, you know, two, I'm introducing them to my stuff as well. Um, but the one thing that I did find, which I think is the most motivating and inspiring to me is the amount of kids who do end up reading my book and then their teacher or them or their parent will reach out to me later and say, I wasn't a reader until, or my kid wasn't a reader until you came into the school. And that, that's so important to me because I wasn't a reader at that age. Um, people are surprised to hear that I didn't grow up as a bookworm. That, that came later. Um, so I was actually a really reluctant reader as a, in middle school and high school. So I, I kind of like to think that maybe if like a, an author had come in and, and she showed dorky pictures of herself when she was a kid, like I do, and, and she was just kind of down to earth and just said, here's what my book's about. And maybe I would have actually picked it up and who knows, I might've become a reader earlier. So I like to think that that's also sort of contributing to the, the grand problem of literacy and reader and losing readers to other things in our world. Yeah, certainly. And I would have to think that there's a strong connection or corollary between schools and libraries. So are you uh, doing library talks or librarians coming up to you at these, at these school talks and asking for you to do something at their branches or um, anything like that? Well, most of the time when you speak in a school, you are going to speak in the library uh, of the school and you're usually the coordinated, it's usually coordinated by the librarian of the school. Um, I do more school visits and I do library visits. I have done library visits. Um, I'm just, I'm not as, I'm not as, con I'm not contacted as much by librarians as I am by, or public librarians that I am, as I, as I am by school librarians. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's, you know, the, the author visit day and that's almost always coordinated by the, by the school yeah. librarian. Yeah. And are they finding out uh, f about you from your website, from your books, from other schools? Any idea? There's a lot. Yeah. There's a lot of ways that you can find authors to visit your schools um, for your local independent bookstore probably does school visits. Um, so that's usually who I do it through is through a local, through a local indie bookstore because they'll have the the connections with the schools and the authors and they also come in and sell the books. So it's sort of a win-win for win-win-win for everyone. Um, and, and then the other ways is like, I have a contact form on my website. So sometimes people will fill that out. Um, or sometimes people will get my name from another school, but lots of, yeah, lots of different ways. Excellent. So what, what came first, the, the school visit or uh, the, the online courses in writing Mastery Academy? Oh, the, um, the school visits. It was sort of my, um, my foray into um, speaking, public speaking. Um, I was actually a public speaker in high school. I was on the speech, competitive speech and debate team. So it's, it's something that comes second nature to me. I'm not, I'm not afraid of getting up and speaking in front of people, which is a plus when it comes to having to do it. Um, so I started doing, yeah, the, the school visits. And then a lot of schools will ask me, like I have sort of a standard presentation that I give about, about how I became a writer. Um, but then a lot of schools will ask me to do like a writing workshop or something like that. And so that's when I started to put together um, workshops. And then um, I actually was asked by... Um, my local library back in Colorado before I moved away from Colorado, I was asked to give a series of writing workshops at, it, at the public library. And that forced me again to kind of look at my process and look at the way I do things and start to develop courses for how, how to break all those skills down. Um, from there, I came up, I started coming up with courses like 
um, how to develop blockbuster ideas and how to become more productive in your writing. And that's how I ended up creating online courses based on those same topics. And now my course catalog has grown to seven courses. And then we just recently launched Writing Mastery Academy, which is uh, an online writing school where you get access to all those courses. Yeah. How, how does all of this, um, and you don't have to get into specifics, but I, <laughs> the reason I'm going to ask this question is I think the romantic notion of the fiction writer is you know, sitting alone in a cabin in the woods with a typewriter, just cranking out <laughs> manuscripts, and you know, and and that's usually not the case. But um, I, I'm guessing that these other uh, activities that you're, you're doing are other revenue streams, and they're helping you to kind of manage the the ebb and flow, the uh, you know, the royalties that don't necessarily come in on a regular basis. So, how does all of the 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 education piece fit in with everything else you're doing? Yeah, it's a, the, the education piece is definitely what I call my side hustle, um, and it and it has and it has ended up becoming um, more lucrative than I thought it would, uh, which is nice. Um, the other thing that sort of has kept me afloat because it's true, you know, you some books will do well, some books won't do well. You know, you'll get paid like a ton of money for one book, and then the next book they'll pay you like bupkis, and so it is sort of this very weird ebb and flow of the publishing world. Um, the other thing that sort of kept me afloat is doing work for hire, which I do quite often. Um, so that's when a publisher will come to you or come to your agent. They usually come to my agent um, and they have a book in mind that they want to be written and they need a writer. So they'll have already come up with a concept and they'll need a writer. Um, or it's like a brand like Disney. I've written a bunch of books for Disney. They have a franchise that they want to spin off into books and they will look for writers to do that. And those are really great gigs for, I mean, I enjoy them. Maybe not every writer enjoys them, but for me, I love sort of playing in someone else's sandbox for a little bit um, where they, all their toys are already there and you don't have to, you know, bring them and you don't have to create them. And you're just like, Oh, that's a nice castle. I will play with that for a while. Right. And to be um, clear, this is not ghostwriting, right? This is, this is no. work for hire with your name on it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I've actually never done ghostwriting, but that is another kind of good income stream that writers can um, exploit if they're looking to uh, fill the gaps between royalty statements or advances. Um, but not that I wouldn't go straight. I've just never been asked to go straight. So yeah, these ones are all have my name on them. Um, so, but yeah, it's really, they're really fun because you, you get to make some decisions, but not all of them. And that takes a, a, some of the stress off. Like when things go wrong, you know, work for hire, you just call up the editor and go, this isn't working. <laughs> and then you have someone to kind of talk it through with versus when you're, when things go wrong in your own world, you're sort of on your own and you have to figure it out for yourself. Yeah. Do you feel any sort of added pressure uh, writing in these other worlds? I, yeah. I mean, you could look at it that way. Um, there's definitely pressure writing, I think in the Disney world. Um, but you know, Disney's so, they know exactly what they want. So if you write something that doesn't fit or it doesn't, you know, doesn't jive with them or it, it con conflicts with something else in one of their other um, mediums, they'll tell you and you'll fix it. Like it's, it's really not that big a deal. Like, you know, I would put things in, I wrote a series of, for the Descendants uh, franchise and I would put, you know, I would put something in and my editor would come back and say, you know, the, the powers that be, whoever's above her head, you know, don't like this line or they don't want you to mention that or something. And I'll say, all right, <laughs> and I'll just delete it. And because it's sort of 
I think the secret to writing for hire is you really do have to, to distance yourself from it. You cannot, you have to own it to the point where you care about it enough to do something good, but you can't own it to the point where you feel in control of it because you're never in control of it. So you have to kind of create that distance for yourself yeah. to keep yourself sane. That's a good distinction. Is that, um, was that tension there when you did Save the Cat Writes a Novel, which is J one of JD and I's favorite writing books. So uh, oh, thank, you. thank you for that. But um, was uh, because that was, you know, that was Snyder's franchise, so to speak. So yeah. how was that? How were you balancing sort of your, your own, your own words versus, you know, what that legacy was? That, that was such a cool project. And it came about after years of working with, Blake Snyder Enterprises. So Blake Snyder passed away in 2009, um, sadly, but he has this really great team of people who keep his name, his legacy, and the brand alive. Um, and I've been working with them for years, doing blog posts, teaching courses, um, because I, I was sort of one of the early people to be using his screenwriting book to write novels, because in case you don't know, Save the Cat is a screenwriting plotting method. And, um, or that's what the book was about is teaching screenwriters how to use this method. And then I figured out pretty quickly along with other novelists as well, that you could apply it to novels. It just takes some tweaking. Um, and so once I sort of started to, to, to do that and to be public about doing that, that's when they found me and reached out and had me start working with them on different projects. So it was about, I don't know, six, seven years into our relationship together that we both kind of went, we should write a book, right? <laughs> um, and, you know, it was, it was a very like consensual, everybody's on board kind of moment. It was really kind of cool. And they've been really great. Like they've just sort of given me full reign. I think, I think they know I have so much respect for what Blake has done and, and I owe his, my whole career to him. They know I'm not just going to start, you know, going and changing stuff being like, you know, I don't like the name of this beat. I'm just going to rename it. Right. Um, and anytime I did want to change things for the novel edition, I would just run it past them. I would say, what do you guys think? Like, I'm a little bit worried about the way this translates. And, and they would say, that's fine. Like, we're good with that. So I think, um, I, yeah, it, it worked out really well. I didn't, I didn't feel a lot of pressure. Um, I felt more pressure from I, I think the thing that really terrified me when writing Save the Cat, which looking back now is sort of silly because people are really, people are very grateful for the book and I, I'm grateful for them. And I think everyone is that's reading it is finding something valuable in it. And that's fantastic. But for some odd reason, I was so convinced that everyone was going to criticize my breakdowns of famous novels. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so like I, I take some of these like really classic novels and I tell you like, oh, this is the catalyst of this novel, or this is the you know, the theme that the character learns in this novel. And I was just convinced I was going to get hate mail. People saying like, you don't know how to analyze Jane Austen. <laughs> and, and like so far, knock on wood, nobody's done that. I mean, maybe, maybe I'll get that tomorrow after everyone re re listens to this podcast and goes and analyzes. Yeah. My... I hope we're not causing trouble for you. <laughs> I know. I know. I opened Pandora's box. Um, but yeah, that was my biggest fear was that people were going to not agree with my breakdowns. And Every once in a while, people will say like, how, why did you do this instead of maybe this? And really the answer is at this, because I was so paranoid about it, it gave me lots of time to come up with an answer to this, these kinds of questions. Really the answer is it doesn't matter. It, what, what I did 
to, when I broke down these novels was just to try to help teach you this method. So if you see it in another way, if you see Jane Austen broken down in another way, that's fine. Use it as a teaching method because that's what I'm trying to do is just use it as a teaching method. Exactly. And the scene beat sheet is phenomenal. For, for a listener who is just now discovering Save the Cat Writes a Novel, can you give us the overview of what the scene beat sheet is and what it's supposed to do for you as the author? Yeah. So the, big, the beat sheet uh, is, we, we take that from our screenwriting cousins, a beat is like a moment in the, in the story. So um, I like to also call them plot points. So what the Save the Cat method does is it breaks down every great story ever told from the beginning of time into the same 15 beats. And, and people go, no, that's impossible. Not all stories break down to the same thing, but actually they kind of do. Um, and this, what Blake did and what I did in my book sort of proves that is that stories have a natural flow to them and a natural up and down um, momentum. And the reason that they have those, those same kind of templates and uh, paths is because it's what we respond to as humans. So this was something that's been developed, you know, around campfires, billions, millions, thousands of years ago. I don't I'm not an archaeologist um, or anthropologist. <laughs> See, I'm not even an archaeologist or an anthropologist. I don't Close even know enough. the right word. Yeah, I'm not an anthropologist. But anyway, this is sort of what we've discovered that storytelling is, is it's guiding a reader or a listener through this arc or through this, this path of beats or plot points. Um, so it's a 15-beat template, um, and it the method teaches you how to use this template or this blueprint to craft your own story and make sure that it's the most compelling story that it can be. Yeah. What, what if I were going to play devil's advocate and say, of course, and I know say, what you're going to say. You know what I'm everybody, gonna, you, everybody plays devil's advocate. Go ahead. Go I'm ahead. Ready. Right? Yeah, all right. <laughs> so you, you've got all this background in, on your speech and debate team. I'm not going to be able to fluster you no matter what I ask you. <laughs> I'm an artist. I'm so creative. I've got this unique story. I can't possibly lock it into this formula. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, that's, that, that is the, that is what everyone says. Yeah. Um, not everyone. A lot of people will say that, or they'll say, I don't want my story to be formulaic. And it's kind of like, well, it depends on what your definition of formulaic is. I think a formulaic can, is, has, has like a very negative connotation, but what I sort of do with Save the Cat Writes Novel is because I break down so many different novels from different time periods to show you how, how this works. It's like saying that Stephen King is formulaic and Jane Austen is formulaic and Agatha Christie's formulaic and um, you know, all the, Charles Dickens is formulaic because all the classics fit into this template. So you know, I pretty much can take any novel and I can show you where those 15 beats are. And I mean every, any novel that is actually uh, you know, been successful. Like you could write a pile of stuff that is not an actual story. Um, it's really just kind of codifying what a story is and then helping people find that code within their own, uh, within their own creative idea. Um, so I kind of like to say that it's like human beings, right? We look so different from the outside. Like we have different color skin and hair and eyes and and hair texture and all of that and shapes. But underneath we actually, you know, the, the hand bone is connected to the wrist bone and the wrist bone is connected to the arm bone. We have the same skeleton because if we didn't, we wouldn't be human. So we would be a different shape. So the story is sort of the same and this is kind of the skeleton that is holding the story up. 
And yes, we are all completely different and we write completely different stories, but we have to have that structure within that holds it up. Well said. You <laughs> silenced the devil's advocate. <laughs> okay. Well, there'll be more, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, you've, you've had... Uh, some great successes on your own in the fiction world. I was wondering if you have any updates or anything you could tell us about some of your film options that are on the table. Oh, the film options. Um, yeah. So we've had a couple, a lot of my books have been optioned for film. Some that I'm able to talk about, some I'm not able to talk about yet, but hopefully news coming soon. Um, <laughs> Hollywood is such a, is a place that I'm still trying to wrap my head around. Um, there's a couple books that are currently under active option, um, and that's 52 Reasons to Hate My Father and the Unremembered Trilogy. And those are, the producers are working on them. There's a script for 52 Reasons to Hate My Father. I've not read it yet, but there is a script. And actually, I'm heur I've heard there might be a revision to that script coming very soon. <laughs> so, I mean, they keep me up to date. Um, it's just a slow process. I, I It's frustrating, you know, for someone who who can write a novel in three months. <laughs> it's frustrating that they can't make a movie in three months because I just don't understand that. So, um, but yeah, there's, there's movement. We just don't, we yeah. just don't see the end line quite yet. Are you an anticipating any type of formal involvement in any of these deals or um, are, are you just well, serving as an advisor? How's that? I don't have any formal um, involvement in the script or the store, you know, the development, but my contract does allow me a cameo appearance. Good for so, you. <laughs> <laughs> if I want one, it says that I am entitled to one. You you, know, you is... could play the um, the guest anthropologist, <laughs> yeah. right? <laughs> Who says billions of years ago when we sat around campfires? Um, yes, I I could. I, I've actually thought I've been thinking very hard about what I would like to play. I mean, I'm really really good at shopping for shopping in the supermarket not not for clothes but like food shopping yes. i'm so good at like reading labels and you know comparing things and this one has more fat so i'm thinking any scene that takes place in a supermarket just put me on one of the aisles and yeah. i'll be right at home you could be watermelon lady number four <laughs> <laughs> that's right because watermelon lady number three was taken <laughs> i don't know yeah. why there would be four watermelon ladies in any scene but you never we know could fight over the water yes there anyway. you go perfect yeah <laughs> all right i got i got a few more questions for you uh okay. this next one's really super serious uh if you could go back in time and switch places with one spice girl which one would it be <laughs> you really have done your homework um from the guacamole question to the spice girl question i don't know what you're talking about i've never listened to the spice girls um, i don't know anything about scary i know nothing uh well, that's a tough one because they all sort of, when you look back at them now, they all have things going on that I don't know. Um, maybe, maybe Baby Spice. It yeah. just seems to be kind of just like even keel, like no drama. Um, she, you know, Sporty Spice, because then that would mean I would probably still be really in good shape at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know. You'd have to go back in time, so I don't know. We'd have to check the rules on that. I don't know if that would right. count or not. But ba but yeah. baby's safe. I mean, she's kind of playful too, right? Yeah, she seems pretty safe. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So I, this is a, a great question. We love to uh, ask all the guests, and um, you know, none of us are uh, have a crystal ball. But where do you think the the publishing industry is headed in general? 
Oh man. <laughs> it's okay. So you gave me the Spice Girl question as a build your uh, confidence for that. Yeah, one. yeah, exactly. Um, the publishing industry. Well, it obviously changes a lot. It's changing a lot. It's always changing. Um, the one thing that I do have sort of an opinion on is I don't think uh, physical books are going away, and that might just be me wishful thinking because I do love writing them and I love collecting them, but I think the collector mentality of traditional books is something that is going to continue for a long time um you know people said that about about records and vinyls but the thing is is that in and i know there's going to be like a, a thousand musicians that send me hate mail when i say this but um in my opinion and i'm not a musician but in my opinion when i listen to a cd and i listen to an mp3 i can't tell the difference in you know through my headphones i can't tell the difference most people can't. That's all okay, right. good. I'm just going to, you know, maybe with a vinyl that's different, but it's sort of the same experience for me. Um, in, if anything, MP3s are a little bit easier to access. But reading a physical book and turning a page is a very different experience than reading a Kindle for me. And I like doing both, actually, or an e reader. You have to be agnostic. Um, <laughs> no, you don't, but that's fine. <laughs> so it's a very different experience, and I like them differently for different reasons. So that's why I sort of still feel like there is a place in our world for physical books. Um, you know, like like my latest Sky Without Stars, it has this like beautiful, it has these beautiful like case stampings that were only on the first printing. And it's got these beautiful maps that, you know, like on the page, they're just so different, right? Tactile. Tactile things. Um, so for that reason, I do, I have this very, this optimism that books will be around for a while. All right, man. So if you were going to be a Spice Girl, which Spice Girl would you be? <laughs> I had a couple thoughts like uh, while I was listening to this. Like, first of all, you, you need to get a snack, I think, before you interview somebody because uh, the first five minutes of this was all smoothies. And, you know, I, I had no idea Icelandic yogurt existed. Now I'm hungry for that. Um, talking about intolerances, got my daughter's got so many of them. Like, that's a complete nightmare as a parent. So I can't imagine what it would, you know, like everybody loves guacamole. Like, how can you not eat avocados? Yeah. That's, that's horrible. <laughs> That, that's like being allergic to ice cream or, or something. Exactly. Um, Spice Girls, I honestly didn't listen to them. I, I couldn't tell you. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know if it's good or bad that she actually had an answer for that. Yeah, I, 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 I'm um, just surprised that I got to talk about the Spice Girls on a, a writing podcast. That I never thought that would happen. <laughs> yeah, do you have a checklist there somewhere of like, these are the odd things I want to try and squeeze into the podcast at some point to see if I can sneak them in? Like, And, and you, Spice Girls just happen to be on that list? I do, but I'm not going to reveal it. <laughs> Well, she's obviously a, a you know very smart uh, entrepreneur. You know, from from the author standpoint, I mean, she's she's you know doing a lot of different things, but you know, she's got it very organized. I mean, Save the Cat is is how I got to know who she was, but you know, it looks like she's she's been out there for a while. I mean, like from an advice standpoint, you know, where she said prioritize what's important to you and just do that first every day. I mean, I don't know how many different times I've repeated that to other people. Yes. You know, so many people come up to me and they tell me that they're a writer, and then I ask them, well, when do you write? And like, oh, I don't have a whole lot of time. You know, I work all the time. I've got the kids at home. I've got this. I've got that. And so it's if, if it's a priority, you've got to find a way to, to fit it in there and um yeah do do it first get it out of the way then everything else should come second and i'm not saying put your family second but i'm also saying put your family second because you've got to <laughs> you've got to get it done well you know but it's but it's um it, it's not that it's not that like 
it's not that cut and dry, right? Like I know when you say like, you know, put your family second, but in a way when you put that passion or you put that drive first, it is helping your family like in a way. Right. So like it, it, it's, it is important to, to, to get that first, first thing done in the morning. And that could be exercising or meditation or writing or whatever it is you need to be successful. Your family needs you to be successful as well. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about this before. Every author that I know that that's successful and in, in, in working as an author, um, they've got the support system in place. And it usually starts with the spouse and with the family. Um, my first wife didn't understand why I locked myself in my office for hours of the day and wrote. And, and that's why she's my first wife. Um, <laughs> you know, Stephen King's wife, you know, pulled Carrie out of the garbage can. You know, it's, it, there's so many different stories like that. Like you just, it's not one of those things you can really do on your own. And it, it doesn't necessarily mean that your spouse is in they're you know reading your pages for you what what it really means is they're, they're part of that support system they're they're willing to help juggle the kids help juggle the the home life in order to give you those couple of hours each day to to lock yourself in that room and 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 churn out some pages um that's just as important as actually writing the pages themselves and, and sometimes more important because you know it's almost like having a buddy to, to go to the gym with you know like if you just go to the gym by yourself every day you know you might go three days out of the week or so but if you've got somebody that you work out with you know the days that you don't don't want to go that person is pushing you to go um you know and I, I think having a supportive spouse is is very similar to that there's there's days you're not going to want to write but your spouse is going to help you make that time and, and kind of egg you on and I, I think those kind of things are all very important to help you succeed yeah absolutely uh, I, I think the other thing that really struck me in the conversation is you know I, I was kind of setting her up I, I mean I, I know the response to this but uh, I'd like to hear your take on it too this idea that well I don't write to a recipe. I'm a creative. I'm going to create this original story. I don't want the save the cat story beats. It's just locking me in. You know, I can't write that way. What do you, how do you respond to that? Yeah. So it's, it's a fine line, I think, because I, I know a lot of authors that work with a very detailed outline. And, and honestly, I think when I read those books, I, I can feel the, the structure being there. And I think it takes a little something away from the book. Um, but at the same time, like every book fits this particular formula, the save the cat, you know, the, the story beat formula, you know, and if you read that book, you know, at the end, she, she's got probably a dozen different famous stories that she you know, breaks down into those categories. And there's a reason for that, you know, like those story beats are important. They had three act structure is important uh you know the climax of the story needs to fall in a certain way and it's not necessarily formulaic to the point where you know you're, you're putting your you know creating an outline um but I, I think what ends up happening like in my case like I, I didn't study any of this stuff prior to starting to write fiction but I, I read like a fiend like I grew up without a television in the house so I was reading from you know my earliest memories until today. I mean, I, I read a couple books a week. Um, so even though I didn't read books on craft and I didn't study, you know, these different structures, my brain still picked up on these different structures because they exist in virtually every successful book that I've ever read. Um, you know, so I understand, you know, how pacing works. I understand the story is supposed to do this at a certain point. This kind of twist should happen here. Like these things just feel very natural to me as I write. Um, not everybody has that. So, you know, if you find that you're writing a book or you're trying to write a book and you just feel like you're, you know, you're sitting down every day and you're getting the words done, but the story is not going anywhere. Um, you know, I, as a as a book doctor back in the day, you know, I had so many novels that people dropped on me that were like three hundred thousand words, and you know, it was just this meandering tale that you know it just never ended. Um, and I think having those story beats and understanding that structure that that's what keeps that kind of thing from happening. So when I run into somebody that that is you know capable of writing a story but doesn't understand the full structure, this is the first book that I hand to them. 
Yeah, and I don't. Um, I agree with you, and I don't even think it's a question of pantsing or plotting. I think it's when you have a workable draft, do, do you have structure in it? So whether you create that structure ahead of time or you revise to it later, I think the idea is that no matter how you get there, there are these beats that are sort of universal. And if you if you turn your back on that, like she said, you can write a pile of words and, and it, it, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a story. So whether you're you know, plotting it out ahead of time or, or you're just going for it before it hits publication, you kind of have to check to make sure you're hitting those mileposts along the way. Yeah. Every successful author knows where those mileposts are. I, I can get, you know, Stephen King is a, a famous pantser, but I can guarantee when he's at a certain point in the novel, he knows that, you know, it's time to put the accelerator to, to the floor. You know, it's time to start wrapping up some of these threads and it's time to take the story to the, the finish line. And, you know, th those are thoughts that are flying through his head, you know, at, you know, a little beyond the halfway point in the book. Like he just, he knows cause you've, he's done it so many times. And if you've read enough, then you've seen it enough times and you can, you can do it. Um, so we all understand that structure. It's just, you know, it's, it's just, it's just a different way of communicating it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It was great talking to Jessica, like you said, really intelligent and uh, she's doing great things in the community, uh, going in and talking to schools and, and teaching kids how to, how to uh, become storytellers. Just really phenomenal. It was a, a real pleasure to talk to her. Yeah. Have you ever done that? Have you ever talked to a school? I have. Yeah. I've done library talks and school talks and it, it's fun. Uh, kids it, are, kids are a blast. They are, but honestly, for me, it's probably the most nerve wracking. Like I, I could sit down with a room full of adults without any problem, but sitting down with like high school kids and talking about being a writer, um, that that's tough. And like, I, I've done elementary school talks too, like in Pittsburgh, one of my very first ones was for an elementary school. And these kids were like maybe 10 years old. And the only book I had out at the time was Forsaken, which is a very adult book. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, like trying to figure out what to tell these kids is, you know, it's a difficult thing, but like, I, you know, like she said, I, I wish my school had brought in an author back in the day and and had them explain you know the, the fact that you can make a living at this and right you know, just like because that just didn't happen at, at least not in my world and yeah you know so I, I get out there and do it as, as much as I, I possibly can um and the other thing that she brought up that we you know don't talk about a whole lot are these work for hire projects and there, there's a lot of them out there um you know different tv shows you know quite a few of them you know you, you if, if you can get through the door you know you can write for you know star trek you can write for star wars you can write for you know marvel you can write you know all these different franchises, you know, they've, they've got tie-in books and it's very lucrative to be able to get in there. And it's, it's great that you can actually put your own name on the cover. Um, so it's, it's a nice way for an author that's trying to make their, you know, build up their own following to, to bring in some money, um, you know, to basically be able to write full time. So if you can juggle a work for hire project along with writing your own novel, you know, sometimes that's the way to get you as the author to the finish line. Yeah, agree. And then you get that professional experience along with it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, cool. All right, so who do we got up next week? Next week, we've got Tosca Lee. Do you know Tosca at all? I don't know her personally, uh, but I know of her. Okay, so Tosca was, um, she was actually the second person to give me a, a blurb. Um, yeah, I reached out to a number of New York Times um, authors at the time and trying to get one, and, and she was kind enough to give me one. Um, and I had known her because she had written a book called uh, Demon, a Memoir, um, which is a, a really cool book. I mean, it's basically it's a memoir told from a demon's point of view. Um, she wrote it around 2000, if I remember correctly, and it took her about six years to get a, to get a book deal, and, and she eventually got one. Um, she's got some, some crazy stories there. Um, she's a former Miss Nebraska you know, which not a whole lot of authors can, can claim. <laughs> um, and she lives on a farm now in the middle of nowhere, um, just churning out her books. Uh, but a fascinating person. Um, she tries to get to Thriller Fist whenever she can. Um, a lot of fun to talk to. Yeah, it should be a great interview. Definitely looking forward to it. 
Yes, sir. All right. Well, to our listeners, we appreciate your support. And if you like what you're hearing, please tell a friend or consider leaving us a review on iTunes. Until next time, have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers, Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.